This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Important news about BP was broken this week by my guest, Abram Luskarten, an investigative reporter for ProPublica. He got access to three confidential BP documents about internal BP investigations over the past decade, warning senior managers that the company had created a culture of disregard for safety and environmental rules and risked a serious accident if it did not change its ways. These reports from 2001, 2004, and 2007 were the product of an internal panel of consultants and lawyers hired by BP to assess its HR problems and accusations of safety and mechanical problems. The reports were given to ProPublica by a person close to BP who believes the company hasn't done enough to address safety problems. Luskarten's article about this was published Tuesday in the Washington Post. A longer version is on the ProPublica website. Luskarten reports on the oil and gas industries for ProPublica. Abram Luskarten, welcome to Fresh Air. So looking at some of the safety and mechanical problems discussed in these internal documents, are there any patterns that emerged? There are. They're actually strikingly consistent, and that was the first thing that jumped out to us. And, And those were internal criticism for a lack of accountability in the company, lack of support for workers at BP and at BP's contractors, a lack of support for workers to complain about safety failures that they were witnessing or for inspectors to report problems that they were noticing in BP equipment, a consistent emphasis of of production over safety and maintenance and and environmental compliance, meaning they were putting profits ahead of, of safety. And finally, a systematic disregard for maintenance of their equipment, uh, a, a process called that they called run-to-failure, uh, where they would use the equipment for as long as possible while investing as, as little uh, effort and, and money in, in maintaining it as possible. Give us an example of how these documents show that there were times when BP put um, uh, profits over safety. Uh, a 2001 report uh, from BP mentions that the company had not been maintaining its uh, its as-built design documents. And these are essentially uh, uh, final engineering uh, documents and drawings to make sure that equipment was built to specifications, that it was actually constructed to work the way that it was originally intended to and functions properly. Uh, you ask just about anybody in the oil and gas industry or in industry outside of oil and gas, and, and they will describe these as-built documents as absolutely crucial to, to proper functioning of equipment and, and the to safety. Uh, We found just a slight mention of of this uh, as a problem in 2001 in Alaska, and then it was repeated by a whistleblower, uh, Kenneth Abbott, who actually works in in the Gulf of Mexico or worked on on a rig called the Atlantis, another BP rig. And and he is also complaining that BP has not maintained as-built drawings for thousands of pieces of equipment on that Atlantis rig, and thus the rig is is not uh, equipped to operate safely. Aren't there also suggestions in the documents that you got access to, the BP documents, that show that BP or its contractors falsified safety and inspection reports? There's a number of accusations throughout the reports. Now, the reports themselves were very careful to diplomatically approach this topic. Uh, they start with a disclaimer that says that they did not thoroughly investigate those claims and they could not reach a final conclusion. Uh, however, they go to great lengths to repeat the accusations that were made by a number of workers. And the authors of the reports uh, tell me that the inclusion of that information in the reports themselves, uh, given the internal culture of BP and the seriousness of that information, uh, was a great recognition. Of, of that as an internal problem. Now, what we heard from whistleblowers and what's mentioned in several parts in the reports uh, 
ranges from what workers call pencil whipping, uh, which is essentially going out into the field and quickly filling out inspection forms uh, with a great deal of information faster than than uh, you could actually do if you were carefully doing the inspections themselves. Uh, one whistleblower told me that uh, that he found a colleague had had conducted 2,500 inspections on a piece of pipeline uh, over the period of a weekend, and this is in a remote area where each uh, each inspection point entails uh, you know driving a pickup truck for for a couple rough miles from point to point, and uh, in the volume of inspections that he reported back uh, was simply improbable. Uh, other, others have consistently reported both the false accusations of falsification of, of inspection reports or skipping them entirely. And so the documents that you got were gotten from a whistleblower. Um, you've gotten other information from whistleblowers within BP. How are whistleblowers within the company treated? What did you learn about that? Uh, the one person that we discuss in in our story, uh, his name is Stuart Sneed, and and he had consistent problems over a number of years that that culminated in in 2006 when he. Uh, found a, 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 a fault on, on the pipeline. He actually found a several-inch-long crack in, in an oil transit line, and, and nearby workers were, uh, were shaving and buffing that line and creating a whole flurry of sparks and, and doing some pretty in, uh, aggressive construction work on, on the pipeline, and he ordered the work to stop. Uh, the next morning, in a staff interview, uh, by by several accounts of, of colleagues and investigators, uh, Mr. Sneed was was harassed by his supervisor. Was kind of made fun of for for being the overly diligent one or the super cautious one that nobody wants to work with because it might just slow things down. And a couple weeks later, he uh, was in the field and uh, jumped over a puddle, uh, jumped over a little stream on, on the Alaskan tundra to get back to his truck. And and that's something that uh, you know the BP safety guidelines uh, employee handbook says not to do. Uh, that was grounds for for firing this person. Uh, BP investigators who looked into the case had later determined that Mr. Sneed was one of the best, one of the most diligent and, and attentive of the safety inspectors that were on staff at that time. Now, you read that over the past 10 years, BP has paid tens of millions of dollars in fines and has been implicated in four separate instances of criminal misconduct. And until now, BP has fended off such a penalty by promising to change. What kind of penalties might BP be facing this time around? The greatest piece of leverage that the federal government seems to have against BP is the option of debarment, uh, and that is to, to cut off BP from its federal contracts. And that means not only its fuel sales to the U.S. military, which are quite substantial, worth several billion dollars, uh, but uh, Potentially, it's gas leases, it's oil and gas leases on federal lands, both onshore and offshore, and that the, those leases are, are a form of federal benefit, and they also could be uh, could be jeopardized by the process of debarment. In the case of a criminal conviction, especially under the Clean Air Act, Clean Air Act and under the Clean Water Act, uh, two of the key environmental laws at play here, uh, debarment is an automatic process, but it happens in a in a localized manner. Uh, so, for example, after the after the 2006 spill on the Alaska pipeline, uh, that facility was debarred. Uh, BP then went into a process of negotiating with the federal government to find some mutually agreeable solution or settlement agreement whereby they would continue to operate on a, on a probationary level. Um, 
What's at stake now is that the company's operations as a whole, not just its single facility in Alaska or its single facility in Texas, uh, could face debarment. There's been very little indication yet from the Environmental Protection Agency, which is the lead government agency on making that decision, on whether they will actually take this step. Uh, but we hear that all signs point to uh, very serious consideration within the Obama administration and the Environmental Protection Agency of debarment of BP. So, so debarment of BP is one possibility. Um, another possibility is that BP will face criminal charges. Um, what would that mean? A, a criminal conviction in the Gulf of Mexico would be particularly important because BP has a track record of convictions already. Uh, received a, a criminal, a felony conviction after an illegal hazardous waste dumping incident in. 2000 in Alaska. Uh, there were uh, criminal convictions after its uh, 2005 Texas City refinery blast that killed 15 workers, and also after the 2006 Prudhoe Bay pipeline spill. Uh, there's also a, d- a deferred settlement, which for the purposes of debarment counts as a criminal conviction after uh, BP's uh, gas price-fixing uh, scandal in uh, in the late 2000s and 2007. So uh, so another conviction in the Gulf would, uh, would be quite a rap sheet for, for BP at this point. Meanwhile, BP has used dispersants, uh, chemicals, to try to dissolve the crude oil in the Gulf. And the purpose of this is, I guess, to in, in part to make oil more soluble in, in water. You say that BP has bought up about one-third of the world's supply of dispersants. There's been a lot of environmental concerns about what the dispersants are going to do to uh, life in the Gulf. And I'm wondering what you have learned about the environmental impact of the dispersants that have been used. We took a quick early look at the use of dispersants a couple of weeks ago when the spill had just begun. Um, even at that point, uh, before the controversy had had exploded, if, if you will, uh, around the use of dispersants, no one that we spoke with, whether in industry or in the environmental community, represented the use of dispersants as anything other than, than a choice between two evils. Uh, it is essentially a, a decision to uh, keep the oil from from running on the surface and running ashore where it's where it's both visible and it impacts tourism and kills seabirds uh, in exchange for for keeping it in the water column. Uh, nobody claims that it makes the oil go away, and nobody claims that it makes it less dangerous. Uh, what it does by staying in the water column, it uh, according to a National Academy of Sciences report that we uh, we relied on, it can affect uh, early development of marine species uh, like shellfish, uh, mussels, and and oysters, for example, and even the smaller microorganisms that that eventually uh, serve as food for for those shellfish. Uh, it can damage uh, coral reefs and uh, and essentially poison the bottom end of the food chain and the and the and the lower end of uh, of the seafood food chain as well. Um, there's a whole lot of questions, and what we're seeing now is now that that several more weeks have passed is that the use of dispersants in the Gulf uh, is is unprecedented. It's it's the most that's ever been used in the United States, perhaps anywhere in the world. It's the deepest that has ever been applied. Um, and, and every day we're hearing more about these large invisible undersea plumes that would be carrying um, not only the original contaminants of the oil, uh, but also whatever chemicals are, are added to it uh, in the dispersants themselves uh, underwater uh, wherever they, they may go or end up. So can you explain a little bit more what the dispersants are supposed to do? The dispersants essentially take the oil from uh, something that, that tends to glob together and, and stick on the surface where, where it can uh, travel in two directions uh, and, and separate it into, into much, much smaller rivulets of, of oil. 
uh, and 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 separate into three directions, where it can essentially move uh, laterally on the surface as well as as down uh, into the water column itself. Uh, it it's uh, like taking a, a large bubble and uh, and blasting it into into the tiny carbonated bubbles bubbles of a of a glass of soda. Uh, the intention is is uh, not only to make the oil less visible, but to uh, to aerate it, to make it more dilutable, uh, and and actually to to bring it to uh, the surface in in a form where it can also uh, uh, evaporate more readily and and uh, and lose some of some of its uh, most potent contaminants. What we're actually seeing now is that because the dispersants are holding the oil and the contaminants so far uh, below the the Gulf surface that 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 evaporation isn't happening at all. So one of the key functions, uh, intended functions of the use of dispersants seems to not not be uh, working. The Bush-Cheney administration had a reputation as being a very oil-friendly administration. Both President Bush and Vice President Cheney had worked in the oil industry and there was also a very deregulation oriented administration so i'm wondering if either of those two things comes into play in your analysis of what happened with bp in general and with bp and the gulf in particular the cultural problems that we have uh, identified with bp uh, undoubtedly go back uh, Far longer than than the Bush years, uh, BP has had difficulty maintaining its operations and uh, and and has had problems throughout the years before uh, Bush came into office. Uh, however, those years uh, were uh, notorious for uh, for relaxed oversight of the oil and gas industry and a, and a presumption that the most efficient. Uh, uh, form of regulation was to allow the industry to allow BP to essentially to regulate itself. Uh, so, so the government culture at the time was to take a step back and and trust BP's expertise and trust BP's own profit motives uh, to essentially safeguard their own operations. But what we see on a on a much broader uh, scale is. Uh, an industry that is completely intertwined with the agencies that regulate it, uh, an industry that ha- that keeps uh, the its its technological information, uh, its its uh, guidelines, and the and the deep technical uh, understanding of, of what it does very close to chest, and which uh, government regulators can't always keep up with, and and don't always have the laws to to keep up with, uh, and thus. Uh, uh, Consistently maintains the, maintains the upper hand, and you have uh, regulator regulating agencies like the Minerals and Management Service, and and in some other cases, uh, the the Bureau of Land Management, uh, who tend to defer to the companies, uh, encourage them to use best practices, and and hope that they are using them. My guest is Abram Lusgarten. He reports on the oil and gas industries for ProPublica. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. If you're just joining us, my guest is Abram Lusgarten, and he's an investigative reporter for ProPublica. He's been investigating oil and gas. Um, on Friday, June 4th, there were three natural gas wells in northwestern Pennsylvania that exploded, and there was a 75-foot plume in the air. Um, I think this might be a wake-up call to problems in the gas industry. People have been very focused on the oil industry right now, but there's a lot of issues in the gas industry. So let's start with this explosion. Do you know what was in that 75-foot plume? 
It was a mixture of, of what the industry calls produced water, which is uh, essentially naturally occurring water from deep below in the uh, geologic formations where the gas exists, mixed with chemicals that the drilling companies inject as part of the drilling process, as well as hydraulic fracturing fluids, which is uh, another uh, suite or mixture of, of chemicals and water and sand that the companies use in the drilling process. So there were, what was like a million gallons or something of this stuff that went down the side of a mountain? Yeah, each well that is fractured, uh, that's the process that the uh, drilling companies use to break apart the rock deep underground and, and release the gas, uh, can use uh, as much as five, seven million gallons of this fracturing fluid. Uh, in in the blowouts in, in uh, northern Pennsylvania last week, uh, I read that a million gallons of this fracture fluid was sprayed into the air, uh, wound up in, in a local spring, uh, and flowed into, into some local creeks there. Uh, the State Department of Environmental Protection said that it was not a water contamination concern, but mostly because that area was so rural that the pollutants were going to be diluted sufficiently before they reached any place where they could actually threaten people doesn't necessarily mean that the chemicals themselves aren't dangerous. Tell us about the the process of hydraulic fracturing, known as fracking for short, a relatively new process that's used to extract the gas from rock formations. What you have are are, uh, large deposits of gas dispersed in tiny bubbles locked in the rock. Uh, could be 2, 8, 12,000 feet beneath the surface. And in hydraulic fracturing, they drill a well, and they then inject under enormous pressure a mixture of, of water, sand, and hydraulic fracturing chemicals. The pressure breaks apart the rock. It creates uh, a series of, of faults and fractures that lets these trapped little bubbles of gas come out and then and flow back up to the surface. The chemicals are used to, to essentially lubricate the well and control the viscosity of the fluid. It's a, it's a highly engineered technical process, but uh, the chemicals would, for example, allow uh, a very thick gel-like fluid to be injected, but then on the turn of a dime be turned into a, a very uh, viscous, thin fluid so that the gas can move out readily past it. So give us a sense of how much water is actually, how much like chemical water is actually used in this process and what happens to the water after it's used to create cracks in the rock formation? Yeah, the industry tends to uh, portray this this fluid, this mixture, as almost entirely water. And they say that that less than 1% of the mixture uh, consists of these chemicals. However, the volume of water is so great, is so large, that, that when you look at, uh, at a net volume of chemicals, in many of these wells, it can be 10,000 gallons, 20,000 gallons of toxic chemicals that are being injected down uh, into the earth. In many cases, the vast majority of those fluids are left underground. Uh, for years, the industry said that, that they were almost entirely removed and properly disposed of. Uh, what we learned, especially as drilling has, uh, has spread across New York and Pennsylvania in the Marcellus Shale, uh, is that as much as 85% of those fluids can be, can be left underground. And, and that raises questions about where they ultimately go, uh, how effective the geology is in locking them in, or whether they can migrate through underground uh, fractures and faults and into drinking water supplies. Well, you know, there's this new documentary called Gasland, and uh, in that documentary, the filmmaker Josh Fox shows somebody setting their tap water on fire. The water comes out, and (laughs) this guy holds a cigarette lighter to it, and the tap water just kind of explodes, and then the filmmaker does it himself, and the same thing happens. Is that something that you've witnessed in your travels investigating 
the impact on uh, of of this um, uh, fracking water on communities that rely on wells and, and local oil, where the water, it seems, has been infected by the fracking water. It is. I believe that footage comes from uh, a home in Fort Lupton, Colorado, a, a small town just outside of Denver where, where natural gas is being drilled. Uh, one of the uh, most common problems uh, that you find in, in gas drilling areas is uh, the seepage of methane. Uh, methane is the natural gas that, that is being extracted. Uh, but depending on how the well is constructed and, and maybe defects in the geology, that gas can escape and, uh, and seep through the ground and, and wind up in, in private wells or private drinking water supplies or in aquifers or in some case can bubble right up to the surface. Uh, when you see in Gasland uh, tap water uh, being able to lit on, be, be lit on fire, that's that's the methane in that water, and it is a sign of contamination. Uh, it's not exactly the same as as the fracturing chemicals, but it's very significant because one of the arguments that the industry makes uh, concerning the use of the fracturing chemicals is that it cannot migrate underground. Now. If the gas can be released and travel through uh, these underground faults and fissures, in some cases for many thousands of feet, uh, then scientists believe that the the fracturing fluids will be able to migrate as well. Abram Lusgarten reports on the oil and gas industries for ProPublica. We'll talk with the director of the documentary Gasland in the second half of the show. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. We just heard about some of the damaging effects of the toxins used in and created by the process of gas drilling called hydraulic fracturing or fracking. Let's bring back journalist Abram Lusgarten, who investigates the oil and gas industries for ProPublica. This year, he won a George Polk Award for environmental reporting. So one of the amazing things about the story of the use of hydraulic fracturing to extract gas from rock formations is that any contaminants released by this process are exempted from EPA regulation and from the Safe Drinking Water Act. How did that happen? In 2005, Congress passed the Energy Policy Act. This was the culmination of the Bush administration's energy policy and the meetings that uh, that Vice President Richard Cheney had under the Energy Task Force in the early 2000 and 2001. The Energy Policy Act essentially created a loophole that exempted the process of hydraulic fracturing from regulation under the Safe Drinking Water Act. In some ways, it was a clarification. The Safe Drinking Water Act is intended to regulate any fluids that are injected underground. Uh, The Safe Drinking Water Act stipulated that the fluids injected for hydraulic fracturing are used in the production of a resource and are then removed and therefore don't constitute the disposal of fluids and therefore shouldn't be regulated under the Safe Drinking Water Act. However you reason it, the net effect was that the exemption was created and the EPA's authority to regulate the specific process of hydraulic fracturing was removed. Ever since 2005, the EPA has not been able to invoke federal regulations that govern what tests are done before the hydraulic fracturing process is conducted, how the process itself is conducted, or examining what impacts it has after it's been done. There was a 2004 EPA study that said that fracking posed no risk to drinking water, and that study helped lead to the uh, EPA exemption in the 2005 energy bill. But you say in that 2004 EPA study that there was some almost collusion between the gas industry and the EPA on that. 
Well, we filed for, uh, under Freedom of Information Act, we filed for papers and documents that led to the writing and publishing of that report. And, and some of what we saw uh, were emails and meeting notes that showed a direct negotiation, in this case between Halliburton, which is one of the companies that conducts hydraulic fracturing in the United States, and the Environmental Protection Agency. As the EPA was Deciding how to represent its conclusions was deciding how to word its report. Halliburton had essentially asked that they not receive as much intense scrutiny, as much inspection scrutiny from the EPA in exchange for an agreement to stop using diesel fuel in their hydraulic fracturing solutions. Diesel fuel was one of the chemicals of, of greatest concern because it contains benzene, which is a, a known carcinogen and, and was one of the most important chemicals being used at the time for hydraulic fracturing and probably presented some of the greatest threat to, to drinking water supplies. So there was a little bit of a, of a back and forth that was uh, illuminated in the EPA's internal documents before it reached that conclusion. So it was like a negotiation, a bargain. It did. A, it, it was a negotiation. The EPA signed a memorandum of understanding. It was a voluntary agreement with Halliburton and Schlumberger and BJ Services, which are two other companies uh, that do a lot of the hydraulic fracturing in the United States. It got their verbal and written promise not to use diesel fuel, presumably in exchange for lighter regulatory scrutiny. But the EPA, in turn, didn't take away any uh, hard and fast ability to enforce that agreement. It's really a handshake agreement. So did the oil industry follow through on its agreement with the EPA and stop using benzene? We heard for years that that agreement had been voluntarily complied with. I did a, a great deal of reporting with those companies, with BJ Services and Halliburton, uh, looking at what chemicals they were using in a variety of situations, and we consistently told that diesel fuel in particular was not being used. Then we learned just a couple of months ago, uh, in response to some documents that had been submitted to Henry Waxman for one of his inquiries, that in fact BJ Services and Halliburton had both continued to use diesel fuel in large volumes at some of some of their wells. It's not clear yet that that committee uh, has not uh, made all of its information public or followed up on the issue. But at the time, Halliburton and BJ said that that it was an oversight, that it was not being regularly practiced across many of their well sites, but had apparently been used at, at a few. But I think that that shows the lack of ability of the EPA, because it doesn't have authority to come and check, to make sure that diesel fuel is not used for hydraulic fracturing. Gas companies are trying to buy leases to drill on as much land as possible that the gas companies think might have gas. And so they're going to uh, landowners in many states now saying, give us access to your land so that we can, we can drill. It won't affect you, be no problem. What are the implications of that? Because a, a lot of landowners are saying yes, and that means that the gas company is getting access to a lot of land in, you say, about 32 states? Yes, in 32 states. It's a very interesting impact on, on these local communities. And one of the things that is dramatically different about natural gas exploration, uh, as opposed to the ways that we've become familiar with oil exploration, is that gas can happen uh, spread across a, a landscape in numerous locations in uh, small-scale facilities. It happens closer to inhabited areas, rural and urban, than any other energy extraction process has in the past. And it tends to infiltrate the communities in which it happens uh, because it is barely noticed at first and it seems to be low impact until it is large and up and running. 
leasing of lands, what's happening now across Pennsylvania and New York, is an extremely attractive prospect for these communities. These are places typically with very low incomes who need an economic stimulus, love the idea of being paid perhaps millions of dollars for the equivalent of a gold rush on their property. These are people who tend to readily believe the promises from the oil and gas companies that the impact will be low, that their water will be safe, and that they will make a lot of money, and have been signing away permission forms that allow the companies to come in and drill. But what is some of the damage that you've actually seen going to communities where the drilling is already taking place? Well, it's a broad range of impacts, uh, and it starts with extensive truck traffic on the roads. Uh, typically, either new roads are built into extremely rural or, or wilderness areas, or existing roads are expanded. Trucks represent constant traffic through uh, some of these smaller towns. Then the well pads are cleared, five to seven acre pads, and then the drilling begins. As the drilling happens, and through the hydraulic fracturing process, you have a 150-foot tall derrick with bright spotlights on it running a large diesel compressor engines that can be heard many, many miles away. It really turns a pastoral landscape into an industrial landscape. You may have to peek around a corner or, or through the woods to see a, you know, a drilling derrick in rural Pennsylvania, but you'll be able to hear it tens of miles away. And, and when there are dozens of them operating at the same time, it becomes sort of a background din that permeates the landscape and, and the community. At the same time, there's consistently underground impacts to water supplies in these areas and degradation of air quality uh, as a result of both the emissions from the drilling equipment itself, from the gas compressor stations, and also from evaporants from the waste fluids and the hydraulic fracturing fluids. So uh, what are some of your concerns about the larger impact that um, hydraulic fracturing is, is having? Well, there, there are several fold, but one of the most interesting things that I found is that there is essentially no scientific understanding of what happens to both the fractured rock and the chemicals that are left underground after the rock is fractured. I look at a water-constrained future, a, a future in which reservoirs and underground aquifers are becoming increasingly valuable, not just in the West but in the East. And here we have a process where extraordinarily large volumes of chemically contaminated water, water that nobody would represent as being safe to drink or even necessarily treatable to turn into drinking water. And we're injecting it without a lot of forethought, without a lot of study, and, and with very little understanding of, of where it goes and what its, its long-term ramifications might be. When you couple those concerns with hundreds of reports of well contamination across the United States of both methane bubbling up into water and making tap water flammable and other levels of heavy metals and, in some cases, chemicals in, in drinking water supplies. It points to questions that I think that regulators need to answer before the drilling is allowed to proceed at the, at the pace at which it's been happening. Are regulators paying attention? We've talked about how uh, fracking is basically exempt from federal regulation now, you know, that the byproducts are, of, of it are, are exempt. Is there an attempt to change that? There is. There was a bill introduced last year in Congress by three congressmen, uh, Congresswoman Diana DeGette from Colorado and Jared Paulus of Colorado and, and Maurice Hinchy of, of New York. Uh, it's called the Frack Act, and it would restore the EPA's authority to regulate fracturing if it chose to do so. It wouldn't mandate the agency to regulate fracturing. And it would also require disclosure of the chemicals, uh, the naming of, of chemicals that have hitherto been kept mostly secret. Right. It is considered a proprietary brew. 
so that they don't have to disclose what the chemicals are that they're u- using in the process. Exactly. Abram Luskarten, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Abram Luskarten reports on the oil and gas industries for ProPublica. You'll find links to all of the articles mentioned on today's show on our website, freshair.npr.org. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. WHYY's chief content officer is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is Audrey Bentham. Roberta Chirac directs the show. I'm Terry Gross. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. What would you do if you were offered a lot of money by a gas company in return for leasing the right to drill on your land? That was the position my guest Josh Fox was in. His family's land is on the Delaware River Basin on the border of New York and Pennsylvania. When the offer was made, he didn't know anything about the drilling process known as hydraulic fracturing or fracking, a process which was just described in our show by reporter Abram Luskarten. It involves high-pressure injections of millions of gallons of water, chemicals, and sand into underground wells. This causes the rock layers deep underground to crack so that natural gas flows up the well. Fox decided to investigate what happens to those toxins and how they affect communities that said yes to the gas companies. So he took his camera to over 20 states where gas companies have been fracking. His new documentary called Gasland won the special jury prize for documentary at the 2010 Sundance Film Festival. It will be shown on HBO Monday, June 21st. Josh Fox, welcome to Fresh Air. What was the offer the gas company made to you? Um, we were offered about $100,000 to lease 19.5 acres of uh, my family's house and land in the Upper Delaware River Basin of Pennsylvania. And what did the gas company tell you about what impact this would have on, on your land and on your life? Um, they say very little about the actual impacts. Um, they talk to you about how much money you're going to make. Uh, they say, listen, we might not even drill. Uh, we don't know if there's actually gas here. It's going to be a fire hydrant in the middle of a field, very, very little impact to your land. You know, you won't hardly know we're here. Um, Within my family, uh, there was a little bit of of debate about this. Um, I think at first my my father was interested in leasing because he was interested in the money. And I said, look, I think I have to look into this. Um, Give me some time to go ahead and get the facts. So you traveled around to see how this process of hydraulic fracturing to get out the gas affected other communities and other homeowners. Um, What were some of the most alarming things that you saw? Well, you know, the first place I went was a town called Dimmick, Pennsylvania, which was about 50 miles from me, uh, and I'm right near the New York-Pennsylvania border. Uh, what I found there was absolutely astounding. Uh, I found people who had leased for very little money, uh, $25 an acre. And when I got to that town, the first thing that I heard about was uh, a woman named Norma Fiorentino. Her water well exploded on New Year's Day of 2009, and it sent a concrete casing soaring up into the air and scattered debris all over her yard. And then other people started to notice that their water was bubbling and fizzing. Some of their water had been discolored. By the time I got there just a month later, there were children who were complaining of getting sick, animals who were getting sick. And the whole place was pretty much laid to waste. I mean, there was like gas well pads everywhere, incredibly heavy truck traffic. It seemed like normal life had just been turned completely upside down. And I heard all these reports of people who could light their water on fire. And I saw water tests, which indicated less of natural gas in the water. 
um, heavy metals in the water, uh, which are I've later found out to be associated with the drilling muds, which are the lubricants for the drill bit that punctures down through the aquifer. Um, when you're uh, subsisting off of well water for your whole life, your water is a point of pride, and I think everybody was shocked that their water, which was had been great, um, had turned into something that they couldn't rely on and that were they were afraid of. No, no, you did find places where the tap water could be set on fire. Where did you go to find that? Well, that was in in Colorado. Um, reports of water being flammable right after a hydraulic fracturing process were actually I found out fairly common across the country and also in Canada. Um, and I'd seen pictures of it uh, from a, a woman in Alberta. I'd heard about it in Louisiana and Wyoming, Texas, Colorado. Um, but uh, generally what happens is those people's water wells are disconnected and then uh, the, the gas company trades a non-disclosure agreement for a water supply. So it says you can't tell anybody what happened, um, but we're going to give you replacement water uh, for how, forever long as, uh, uh, as you want. Um, so we had to kind of scramble to, to catch a place that was that, that had just happened, and that was in Weld County, Colorado, where uh, there had been a lot of fracturing. There's a lot of gas wells. It's just uh, northeast of Denver. And there were five or six different families that we saw lighting their water on fire right out of the tap. In fact, I did it myself, and uh, it just turns your whole world upside down when you can turn the faucet on and then stick a cigarette lighter under it, and it's just, you get this explosion of flame. Yeah, it's like the flames spread through the whole sink. I was surprised that the guy's arm didn't burn up, but he knew to well, get it out really, really quick. I guess. Yeah, well, it's a kind of hilarious scene because the first thing you know, I mean, the first thing that happens when you see somebody lighting their water on fire is just like your brain just kind of goes crazy, um, and then you start to think, well, what happens if they had a fire in their house? How would they put it out? And then the thoughts of the, some of these people were showering with the lights off because they were afraid if they turned on the light bulb, if there was a spark from the light bulb, they would blow up the shower. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was really intense. But at the same time, there's a kind of gallows humor that, that takes over uh, because I think they'd had so little ability to appeal to any government agency about this problem. Um, you know, they, they were continually not being able to find a government agency, whether that was the State Department of Environmental Protection or the in Colorado, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, um, generally were, were telling them that what was happening to them was not happening to them. In one of the scenes in your documentary, Gasland, there's a woman who has been finding small dead animals and, and, and toads, you know, in her area. And um, she's alarmed and thinks that it might be a result of contaminated water from the fracking process. So she she decides to take some of these dead creatures, freeze them in her freezer um, until she can get them autopsied. And she seems so totally creeped out by this, but she feels like she has to do it. Can you talk a little bit about her? You're talking about Lisa Bracken in Colorado and Divide Creek. Um, basically, the gas industry came in, uh, took over large sections of her property. What happened was she discovered that the creek, Divide Creek, was bubbling and fizzing, and her father went down there, and they could they discovered that they could light the creek on fire, and that was known as the Divide Creek seep. The fracture hit um, some other natural fissures in the ground after the fracking, and that exploded plume of benzene, toluene, methane into the creek. They complained there was a there was a settlement, but basically dead animals kept showing up around the creek. The seep occurred again in 2008. 
because the companies were allowed to go back in and continue to do the fracking. And so she was so frustrated that she started to collect these animals, freeze them to try to deal with how to prove that this was happening because of the gas. She wanted to find out what chemicals were killing these animals. Um, the burden of proof in this situation is on the citizen, even though the chemicals could never be in the environment any other way. Uh, it's still up to the citizen to prove that, this, that the gas company got the chemicals in their water, which is virtually impossible to do because you need a hydrogeologist, you need chain of custody, you need things that citizens don't have access to. But um, in a sort of desperation, she's picking up these animals, freezing them in her freezer, trying to send them off um, to get autopsied. She couldn't figure out where to get them autopsied or how to identify the things that had killed them. But, you know, she said she had them in her freezer, you know, and you see that in the film. And it's a very eerie. It's almost like the David Lynch section of Gas. <laughs> that's film, right. You know? That's right. She comes out and she's like, um, all right, well, here you go. And she unfolds all these, these dead birds and a rabbit and apparently they were just in a freezer. And I asked her, you know, Lisa, did, did, did you ever think you were going to be freezing animals, dead birds, uh, and this kind of stuff in your freezer? She said, no, this is the creepiest thing I've ever ever seen, you know. And uh, again, it's that strange sense of we're living a nightmare. Uh, we've got uh, dead rabbits and birds and dead crawfish in the back of our freezer behind the hamburger meat wrapped in Walmart bags. Um because simply we're at the end of our rope. We don't know what to do. My guest is Josh Fox. His new documentary is called Gasland. We'll talk more after a break. This is Fresh Air. My guest is Josh Fox. He made his new documentary Gasland after his family was offered a lot of money by gas companies that wanted to lease the family's land to drill for gas. You have decided not to lease your land to a gas company for hydraulic fracturing. Mm-hmm. What about your neighbors? Do you have a lot of neighbors who are saying yes to the deal? Oh, yeah. We're completely surrounded by people who have leased. The difficult thing about this is that it's a, it's a decision for a whole community that's left up to certain individuals to decide what they want to do. Because if the, the neighboring property next to me is leased and I want to sell my house, I'm in a very difficult situation. It's very hard for me to get financing from a bank because I'm now adjacent to an industrial zone. Uh, there also is, in many states, what's called compulsory integration or forced pooling. So if 60% of landowners in one 1,200-acre parcel lease, you're leased, um, which means they can take the gas from out from under you. Uh, you're forced basically to sign a lease. You wait, know, wait, wait. Uh, it, you're forced to sign a lease? Yeah. And in many parts of the country, um, that's true in New York. In Pennsylvania, they're, they're contemplating implementing forced pooling in Pennsylvania. But in, a lot, you know, in Dieff Hoffmeister's case in Colorado, where, I, where I, um, a person who I interviewed in Garfield County, Colorado, who was made very sick by this cloud of gas that was in her house when she came home from her vacation in Minnesota, and she ended up going down uh, and in the hospital for quite a long time and has neuropathies and, and other kinds of brain damage that very big problems. She was forced pooled. Basically, um, the gas company came and said, look, you have no choice. You can either sign this lease right now um, and take some money from us because we're taking the gas or you can not sign this and we won't give you anything. Um, and there's a lot of intimidation tactics like that that we've been hearing as we go around the country. Just last night in Dimmick, we were showing the film um, at, a, at a, a, sm a small movie theater. And people said the first time the landman came, they were very sweet and they was asked us to sign. We said no. The second time they came, they offered us more money. The third time, 
they said, well, you know what? We're going to take your property anyway. You might as well get some money and, 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 and some other things which I can't repeat. So, you know, there is this kind of being forced, whether that's from the landman pushing you or there is actually this law that says if 60 percent of landowners in a 1,200-acre parcel um, in many states – and this is state-to-state state, – lease, then you're leased, period. One of the things you were trying to figure out is uh, does the fracking fluid that can seep into uh, into the ground and into groundwater and do the, the gases that are released during the process, are these things affecting the health of people who live near the gas wells? So what did you find about health problems that people thought were likely caused by the fracking process, although they probably couldn't necessarily prove it. Health complaints are happening all over this, uh, these unconventional gas drilling areas. We know what the chemicals do to you, and we know what symptoms we're seeing. We're seeing neuropathies. Uh, there are forms of cancer. We're asking for a health study to be done and a moratorium so that, people can, so that they can be investigated what exactly is happening with people's health. Right now, all we have is this is what's happening to people. We don't know if it's a result of the air, if it's a result of the water, but we do know what those kinds of chemicals do to you, and we're seeing those effects. You traveled to some key states around the country where hydraulic fracturing is already happening. You've told us about some of the problems that you've witnessed. Uh, were there any communities where things seemed to be going well, and the the landowners who had agreed to lease to the gas companies were happy with their decision? You know, it's a great question. I've been doing a lot of public appearances with the film, and I've actually asked the gas companies, listen, if you've got an ideal town where you've got 100-plus wells and everything is going swimmingly well, nobody's upset, and you don't have these problems with air pollution, water contamination, health problems, I want you to take me to that town. I want a guided tour. Um, so far, no responses to that. I don't think such a town exists. I think what we're doing is going from place to place and contaminating those water supplies. I, I, I haven't found that town. Uh, and, you know, we were looking for it. Josh Fox, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Terry. By the way, I think I used to go to summer camp near where you are. <laughs> oh, where did you go? It was uh, in Wayne County, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. Well, there's so many camps in that area. Are there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a lot of summer camps, and you'd be surprised at how many of those summer camps are leasing. No. Wow. Oh, yeah. Really? Well, this is, listen, we're talking about wow. 65%. We're talking about 65% of Pennsylvania. Wow. 50% of New York. So in we're talking about even if the summer camps aren't leased, their neighbors are leasing. So, 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 you know, I never thought of that. So that means that, like, some of the summer camps might actually become oil wells? Well, no. Listen, th what, the, what the gas company is saying is that you can live where this is happening. Um, you can go to camp where this is happening. If watersheds are not off the table, schools are not off the table, summer camps are not off the table, near hospitals is not off the table, you have close to 15,000 wells in, in the downtown, in, in, Fort, in the Fort Worth area, in the urban area, in the, in the country, in the city. This is everywhere. So it stands to reason if you could put it next to somebody's house and the gas company says that that's okay, you can put it in the middle of a summer camp. You can put it in the middle of a lake. This is, you can put it right on the banks of the Colorado River, which supply all the water to Los Angeles. This is what we're seeing. Well, Josh Fox, I want to thank you very much for talking with us. Okay, thank you. 
Josh Fox's new documentary, Gasland, will be shown on HBO Monday, June 21st. He's currently touring with the film, showing it to audiences in areas affected by gas drilling. You can watch clips from the documentary, Gasland, as well as a map showing natural gas drilling areas in the U.S. on our website, freshair.npr.org. Coming up, why toxins released in the process of fracking aren't regulated by the federal government. Reporter Abram Luskarten returns. This is Fresh Air.